You're tuned in to RX Radio. Movement prescribed. Brought to you by Prescript.com. A personalized approach to keeping you healthy and making your best even better. Your hosts, Dr. Jordan Shallow and Dr. Jordan Jinta. All right, guys, welcome back. Another episode of RX Radio. Um, this one is back by popular demand. Now, we've had very few return guests on the show, but we've also had very few guests turn as many heads as quickly as my main man, Ian Kaplan. Um, I told you he was coming. Uh, I get excited whenever I get to chat with this guy. He's kind of my, he's my number one, like, reading library. Cap says read a book. I'm on it the next day. Uh, it's just you're hard-pressed to find people that are as smart and as well-read and as critical and as open-minded as as a guy like calf like he sees things in a way that just makes you blow your mind like he he answers he has he gives you answers to questions that you didn't even know like you, you you're blown away by the depth of the question let alone the the actual answer that he gives you. So he sits there and gives you, he poses this question to you that you're like, holy shit, like I never even thought of that being something that's 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 even up for debate. And he poses it in such a way. And on top of that, he also gives you a, an answer that's even to more depth and detail than, than, than the question. It's fucking amazing, man. Like I really can't, I can't overstate the importance of having people around you who are that challenging. Like, I, I think when I talk to Cap, I'm like squinting because I'm like looking in all corners of my brain for enough information to just stay relevant in the conversation. Like he's um, just on another level. Like across the board, the dude's the dude's capacity for critical thinking is like is is fucking next level um and a lot of you guys shared around this last episode i think if you like the last episode you'll really like this one um yeah so i mean without any further ado ian kaplan uh if you don't follow him do yourself a favor like there's so few people out putting out good stuff in the industry um his ability to understand statistics and, and relay significance is just on it's it's like nothing that's out there right now so um, head on over, give them a follow, give them a shout on Instagram. If you like the episode, you know, do the whole screenshot thing, share. We always love that. Um, yeah, without any further ado, uh, Ian Kaplan. So I've been on this like nicotine gum kick lately mm-hmm. and I always get like funny looks at the store when I buy it. Cause like, Hey, he doesn't really look like a smoker, <laughs> but I can't tell if it's a good or bad thing. Cause it's supposed to have like, uh, and maybe this is like a good segue, like, I hate to use the word nootropic properties to it because that word has almost lost all meaning. Yeah. It's almost like the functional core exercise of like supplementation these days. Yeah. Have you ever gone down that route? Because you're like a... Of like nootropics? Yeah. I mean, I, like I've had the mushroom powders and all that nonsense. And it's just like, <laughs> it's just a different, I feel like it just modulates the caffeine that they come with. Right. Oh, is that all like a theanine sort yeah, of like? Yeah, yeah. It just like keeps you from getting jittery if you get super jittery with caffeine. I'm glad you call it mushroom powder and not mushroom coffee. Because <laughs> there's someone who's grown to like love good coffee. Yeah, every it's time not coffee. I, it's terrible. I, well, because it doesn't make sense. It's yeah. like, this is an apple orange. It's like, no, no, no. There's apples and there's oranges. 
<laughs> and it's like mushrooms exist and coffee is like people forget that coffee is like a bean or something yeah. like that you can't call it mushroom coffee no because a mushroom's a mushroom there's mushrooms in the coffee they like or there's mushrooms but is like there sprinkled even in. coffee in the mushroom coffee yeah they sometimes they put coffee it's in awful it. it's all bad yeah it's yeah. just not that much that it tastes like mushrooms so no no benefit in the nootropic route uh it's like it's hard to say because it's like what the is the benefit in like short-term recall or like what are you looking for like because there's so much different types of intelligence that you can measure you know like so it was like what are you testing and how are you you know testing it so it's like and, it's just all subjective because i yeah. get people like come to me and they'll ask me like about like putting on size mm. and it's like i could imagine for you you probably get similar questions but your field of expertise is in being smart. So well, I mean, like, the question is about learning more. I don't really get, like, what drugs can I take to learn Really? Smarter? See, that's the only <laughs> question I get is, hey, man, what drugs can I take? It's like, oh, yeah. have you tried, like, eating more than 1,300 calories a day? Yeah. Let's start there. No, people aren't usually like, what drugs can I take to get smarter? Because then I would say, like, if you need to do that, like, actually take drugs that help you get smarter, which is, like, prescription drugs and also, like... Right, you could you could easily get if you're really struggling with that stuff, which is what people do in college. They take study drugs, but also caffeine does that. You know, it's not it's not that hard. But also, it's just like, you know, people ask about the habits first because because like, you can take all the drugs in, in the world. Yeah. It's the same thing with exercise. You're Eventually, you have to go and learn flame, the thing. Yeah. You don't just you don't just you know drug yourself with knowledge. You know, you actually have to go through the process of of doing the work. But I think in the current landscape of that supplement industry, there's mm -hmm. something to be said about the marketing of drugging yourself to knowledge. Like yeah. with on its sort of prolific rise to fame on the backs of Rogan and all that. And then oh, like yeah. their henchmen being what I would consider just a drug addict. Like I, I, I said this on a podcast a few weeks ago and mm -hmm. I probably shouldn't have, but yeah. I'll say it again. <laughs> but it's like Aubrey Marcus is a drug addict. He's not a shaman. Yeah. Right, like with like nootropics and psychedelics, and like yeah. it's just almost it's almost I see it as almost like the new wave of like the way marijuana was like a novelty, and now CBD products are like really big. It's like now psychedelics are a novelty, and nootropics are are like really big. Yeah, and well, psychedelics are a really interesting kind of corner of psychotherapy, and that they actually seem to have therapeutic effects. If they're done in a carefully supervised environment for the right person with all this prep and in a carefully guided session and a ton of post therapy, you know, that seems to work really well with these huge effect sizes compared to other, you know, psychotherapy. But that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about going to the Amazon and finding yeah. yourself and going you know, with Peru the shaman. With, yeah. Peru's Peru's uh, tourism has gone yeah. through the yeah. roof. It's like that's not the. And then they're like, "Oh, look at these studies out of Hopkins and NYU. Look at how good this is." Well, you're not doing what they're doing yeah. at, at Hopkins and NYU. You're just you're just taking drugs in the in the wilderness. Well, I have you a know? hard time with like so. Right to my knowledge. The and also they carefully screen people like you can't be schizophrenic you can't have a history yeah. of bipolar like there's a whole filtering process for those types of therapies because if you look at the actual like physiological mechanism well i i'm i'm remiss to call it a mechanism of correction but like mm -hmm. it is forming new synapses in the brain like that's yeah. making new connections but people don't realize that one of those connections you can make is between paranoid and schizophrenic yeah <laughs> and like yeah you if you have voices in your head you start to think those voices are real yeah like you know? I, I mean i remember once i was taking an art course in san francisco 
and I live quite close to the hotel lobby that they were hosting it in. It was right across the street from um, Levi Stadium, which is where the 49ers play. And that weekend, the Grateful Dead were doing a back-to-back show at Levi's, which is like, dude, fucking Levi's Stadium. is yeah, like It's, it's the Coliseum. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And yeah. they were filling that bitch. Yeah. Like just a horde of stoned hippies congregated on the South Silicon Valley. Yeah. And I remember this one guy, I was driving in for my test on like the Sunday, and there was a guy walking on the VTA tracks mm. with a train behind mm. him, like honking whatever train horn yeah. they had, and he wasn't in his right mind. Yeah. And it's hard for people to realize that, like, look, that guy, what that guy was probably on is probably the highest success rate of any drug intervention for PTSD. Yeah. Like, MD, I think MDMA yeah. is the most, is yeah. like 80% successful, but when gone through the filtration process and yeah. the screening process. Yeah, and they usually do, you know, non-drug assisted psychotherapy first and it fails. And, you know, there's a lot, there's a whole process to get to MDMA assisted Psychotherapy for PTSD, and and also they're taking good MDMA. Yeah, you know that's pharmaceutical grade. They're not yeah. taking street drugs. <laughs> if you're having yeah. a rough, what he's saying is, if you're having a rough time, don't go to Coachella. And think yeah. that's going to cure yeah, you. Yeah, go to therapy. Yeah. Right, you know, help get professional help. Uh, but yeah, but back to like the you can't just drug yourself into efficient habits and productivity. I was like, does does Jeff Bezos just take drugs all day to to run the biggest company in the world? No, he's built a, efficient systems for him to not work twenty four. So the, I think the the question is like, and Tim Ferriss said it was like being ba- busy is just another form of laziness. Yeah, don't be busy. Right. So how can I be? It's like how can I drug myself to just be better as as busy as I am, yeah. as opposed to how do I develop habits to more efficiently, you know, acquire knowledge, do better work, build what I'm trying to build. And that was the whole ethos of Tim Ferriss's four hour work week, whatever, twelve, fifteen years ago. And that's that's really when people ask that kind of advice to me, that's what I try to get, you know, instilled in them. So in your personal experience, what are your cause I know you to be a very smart guy. And apparently now the internet knows you to be a very smart guy. But it's I mean, I try and keep up on, like, a breadth of things. Mm-hmm. Like, I like to think I'm, like, decently well-read for the space I operate in, yeah. for topics outside the space I operate in, like, trying mm-hmm. to keep it somewhat diverse. And you find a way to have an infinite more knowledge in depth in what I should know and what I proclaim to know on the internet, and also an infinite more breadth in knowledge that I try to know. What is the system in place for you to stay, like, up on current research with, like, biomechanics and and uh, manual therapy and all that, but also, like, I don't know, what was the books we were talking about? Like, the 100-year history of the United States? Yeah. And we we were talking about like trading in securities and the 2008 crash last night. Like how do you find like what are your systems in a day to day? Like give me a normal life in the day of Ian. Uh Okay, so day to day cuz those those are kind of two different questions. Day to day in the morning, I developed the habit of kind of reading over coffee instead of just like pottering around. Like now I'm into espresso, so I'll make an espresso and just read for a little bit. Cause that's, and I wake up kind of early, so that's kind of quiet time. Give me kind of early. So, you know, 6 or okay. six, 6, you know, a.m. typically. Maybe sometimes 7, depending on, you know, it's not exactly set. I really don't set an alarm. I'm, I'm always up by 7. But as soon as I'm up, I'm kind of up. I'm, you know, it doesn't take me that long to kind of wind up like some people. So this routine is kind of specific to me in that way. So I can start reading and actually get, I read pretty fast. And I think that the more you read, the, the faster you read. Like Bill Gates is legendary for reading like 150 pages an hour. It's not like that. 
you know, because if you read 150 pages an hour, you can get through most books in in three to four hours, yeah. right? It, you know, but if you're reading and you're kind of absorbing it, but you're not like caught up in the minutia of the book, you're kind of retaining 90% of it. That's all you really need to know because all you need to know is kind of the thesis of the book and the main supporting elements of it. You don't need to remember everything about the book um, to really get the lessons from it. Uh, so I read relatively fast. You can kind of chew through most books within a week of doing that, you know, you know except for like very long books, but, and those are kind of little special projects. But anyway, that, then breakfast, then work for hybrid stuff, which would be either writing or research and writing or some, you know, or doing program design or kind of cognitively intensive work. Um, program design might be safe for the weekend, but if it's like a big hybrid program, then, then I'll kind of think about it kind of mid-morning. And then it's like training, and then afternoon is less cognitively intensive work, like emails. You know, I'm more active on the hybrid Facebook group. It's clinic if I have clinic. You know, it's um, lighter reading, or it's like kind of the peripheral stuff I'm interested in. Like I'm not, I'm obviously don't know everything about everything, but I silos the things I'm interested in across, you know, a broad kind of a, array of of fields and industries, and I like to pull lessons from all those different fields and try to apply them to what I'm doing at the moment. Right, so it's not everything about everything. You're a bit of a lateral thinker. Yeah, I'd yeah. Say. yeah, yeah. So, and I think that's important because it, it that's how it's yes, that's how you kind of begin to think creatively, right? These these ideas don't need to come out of nowhere; they can come from other places, and you just have the creative process is thinking about how they are applying to what you're doing now and what problems you're facing. Because someone else has faced similar problems, but not quite exactly the same way, and they've either solved them or or not solved them, and you can learn from from them before you make the same mistake. So I have these kind of, you can probably list half a dozen to a dozen things I'm really interested in that I'll learn about, and there's things I have no interest in, I just won't learn about those things. How you do know? you balance the orthogonality of horizontal and vertical? Because it's like, when do you, like, I guess, how do you pick, okay, when I read in the morning, it's gonna be about, you know, let's let's call it a dozen like sub-genres or mm -hmm. like, um, you know, like you, history, yeah. well-read, philosophy, yeah. psychology. Yeah. And this is just stuff that I've known you to talk about. And that's just the stuff that I like to read about. Yeah, yeah. How do you like, because I'm taking a shift now back into the biomechanics research because yeah. I feel like I hit a certain point. It's like, okay, I don't need to know anymore because I don't know how to express the stuff I know. Mm -hmm. I'm no longer in the biomechanics business. I'm in the people business. Yeah. So then it was like, okay, deep dive psychology, deep dive yeah. um, uh, philosophy, things like that. Like, how do I get this depth to breadth? And now it's to the point where it's like, okay, I'm doubling back now to the biomechanics where I drifted from that for a while. Mm -hmm. How do you keep an active inventory of like, I might know an too too much about this. Now I need to know more about this. Like, how do you keep all the plates spinning? Well, I think it's talking to people like you and also like Steph. When you know, when you go pretty deep into something, and then they're like, "That's way too deep." Either I don't understand it, or or nobody else is going to understand it unless they're really active in the field. Like, okay, maybe I need to spend some time kind of distilling this into into lay terms and and not be so consumed by the minutia of it, even though the the minutia is kind of fun to to work through, but for me, it's always the problems I'm facing, and since this workplace is so dynamic, there's always a new problem to to think about, and that's why, you know, the organizational management stuff comes back, and I kind of circled back to it from, from school, because that was one of the most interesting kind of 
course trajectories in an undergraduate business program is in the core curriculum. There's a lot of organizational management classes. So how to build organizations and how to fill responsibilities and how to build teams and how to nurture teams, right, was was really interesting. So that's that's where some of that reading came back after a while of not really touching it that much. Like and where did this like where did establishing systems and having this breadth like when did it start or where did it start? I mean, I think it started with an interest in program design for training. Like, well, give me an age. An age? Yeah. Eighteen. Okay. Um, I mean, maybe earlier than that because I really liked history in high school. But you were like a smart kid. Yeah. Like this doesn't just come out of nowhere. No, I I mean, I was relatively. It's all. It's like the same thing with everybody's stories. Like you're smart in the stuff that you you're interested in. And in high school, in the first couple years of college, you just don't care about certain things, and it's hard to get yourself to care unless you're like super motivated just to get a good grade. And that was the case in some classes. That wasn't the case in other classes. Yeah, but I, I did pretty well overall. It was just I was in high school. I happened to actually be super interested in history and thinking and developing theses. Right, we were very encouraged to write well and to write academically, and not just. It wasn't. There were no history tests. There was no like memorizing facts. It was like. You know, it was why can you build a case? Can you make a thesis and support it with argument as to why things happened the way they happened? And that's the system's perspective, right? Rather than just circling, rather, rather than rather than memorizing facts and dates and names and circling them on a test, right? Or you write, or you you essentially memorize a bunch of stuff and then regurgitate it on an essay because the essay is quizzing you on, you know, all of the things that preceded a certain event or all the causes and effect, right? So they, the, the, the essay could have given you a thesis and you just had to memorize that thesis of the, whatever the textbook or the author, but instead it encouraged you to build your own argument, which really supported kind of what uh, history looks like in kind of a higher education setting. Is that hard then to go from like having that instilled thought process of critical thinking and then moving into a field like chiropractic and going to a chiropractic college where like I, 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 we talked about this last time where I do this thing where when I teach on weekends and I realize that I might have gone too deep down a rabbit hole and, Mm -hmm. and and I sit there and I try and like, okay, how do I make this palatable? And I've seen you do this with me and Steph a few times Mm -hmm. and like, we kind of know our way around the stuff we're talking about and Mm -hmm. you have to go like, Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How's this? Is it tough then to like go to a, a place where it's so indoctrinated with a way of thinking to be able to take that critical thinking and either dispense it in the short term mm-hmm. temporarily to just get the grade and pass the boards? Yeah. Or or can you compartmentalize that ability to like, like okay, this is what I need to do, just put up and shut up. Yeah, I do a little you know, when it comes down to getting the grade, you do what is asked and it's a, it's a memorization test. Um, but I've told people, I think any clinical education kind of beats critical thinking out of you because they're trying to meet a legal standard and everyone has to hit a certain standard of not failing, right? It's not about cultivating excellence in medicine. It's about making sure nobody kills anybody. Yeah. First, do no right? harm. That's a sign over <laughs> yeah. the door, I think. Yeah, but, but unfortunately, when you when you when you just beat algorithms into people, they start doing some harm. They just don't. Yeah. They don't do an enormous amount of harm. It's a harmless amount of harm. (laughs) I think first do no harm could easily replace with first do no good. Yeah. Yeah. They'd rather you do no good and no serious harm than than kind of play to your strengths and risk harming some people but be great, you know, in other ways. Right? They don't want, 
unique, you know, quirky kind of uh, highly individualistic kind of thinkers, right? Because you're gonna be House DC. That's what you're gonna be. You're gonna be like that show House. You ever watch that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's gonna be you. Yeah, but it's like, uh, yeah. So that that's a problem. But then with with the whole education framework, but but then you just make it a game of memorizing and getting through everything, and the real learning comes from that additional level of thinking. It was like I understand everything they're teaching me, but now I need to figure out in what ways is it actually useful and what ways is it actually not. And when you kind of get to that higher level of thinking, all this memorization and complexity and all these systems that aren't actually congruent with each other is like, this is the exam system, this is the treatment system, this is soft tissue treatment, this is, this is what a trigger point is, this is what you know, a restriction is, is like, you know, this is how you treat this versus that. It becomes, there's so many parallel interfering trains of thought that it becomes very confusing for people when they actually try to practice. But if you if you actually think critically about what is happening and what is not happening and you have some sort of background and, and some sort of kind of framework for questioning which knowledge is is essentially inherited versus which knowledge is is applied from scientific reasoning, then you can simplify these processes down to something that's much more clear, but also much less certain, right? So you so you substitute these certain algorithms for for fluidity and and simplicity and and kind of and this and patient centeredness, but you've lost kind of your mission and your role as the fixer, and you've lost you know this inherited kind of mass of education that you thought was unquestionable that pr that gives you purpose but it just confuses the hell out of you right or you have to confuse yourself because you're like I'm certain about this but I'm also certain about this and these things actually don't agree with each other but I won't I won't address that in my head you know I'll kind of allow that distance to sit right um, but if you kind of are, uh, allow yourself to let go of that and say well I'm not actually sure about these things but I am sure that people tend to get better over time, that if I understand their experience and understand what modifies their symptoms, what kind of aggravates their symptoms, what their goals are, what their expectations are, what their beliefs are, we can develop a unique plan for them. And it really doesn't matter granularly what they do, that as long as they're moving in the right direction, they're on the right path. Is right. it hard to reconcile? Like, because that's very much like a patient-centered approach yeah. is not necessarily a scientific approach. Yeah. Right. Because it's an inexact science at, yeah. at best. Right. Yeah. So, is it hard to reconcle? Like, but we know our objective tests aren't very scientific or reliable, right? So, yeah. our our subjective approach is more objective than our objective approach. But we know that. <laughs> yeah. I don't think, or we know that most people don't know that. Yeah. Like, I don't think if you ask most people the difference between like. Uh, relative and absolute, like percentages, they would know what the difference is. Yeah, I like, think there's a huge problem with people who are science illiterate, yeah. and even clinicians are science illiterate. That like, look at this study; it says this and that. Well, it's like it didn't tell you anything about clinical meaningfulness. It actually disproves. It actually like hurts your argument, right? It, it shows significance, right? So we think the variance in the data is because of some sort of effect. Therefore, this treatment works. Well, it's like that effect could have been a confounding effect, and also the effect is tiny. And also the confidence intervals are huge, meaning there's actually just a lot of noise in the data. 
So if your story was, was right, you would expect a much larger effect, but you didn't see that. And, there's, and we can reason that there might be huge problems with bias in the study or problems with the methods or limitations in the measuring. Like for example, if a study's not pre-reported, then they can just change the outcome measures as they go to find significance to make it publishable. Right, so they can do things to, to, to called p-hacking or data dredging to, to, to make noise look significant. But again, you're not measuring an effect. And if you were measuring an effect, the effect is still really tiny and imperceptible clinically. So you've, you've actually totally disproven your argument with that stuff. And that happens all the time, right? So they look for significant results. They know p might equals less than point, you know, point zero 0.05, which means it's a 5% probability that it's noise. Well, it's actually a much higher probability that it's noise if you have all these other limitations in the, in the methods. But again, as clinicians, we don't learn any of that, especially in chiropractic school. Maybe if you were in like a PT, PhD program, you would, you would learn more of that. <laughs> but you even know. still, because you're, 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 uh, you're like me in a lot of ways, but better in all those ways, <laughs> but where it's like you're, you come from, like I would say somewhat of like a scientific mind and critical thinking. Mm -hmm. You've gone through the clinical rigor, which tries to beat that out of you. Yeah. You've held strong in your <laughs> values and beliefs and have not let the man win. Yeah. But now you're taking this, this clinical mindset, the scientific mindset, and then you're walking into this fitness industry party on the internet going, hey guys, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> yeah, it's, fitness is just as bad. It's equivalent. I would yeah. say it's worse yeah. because of its reach. Yeah. Right. And, and there's more people, and there's the barrier of entry is much lower. There's no vetting, yeah. and that's sad because the barrier of entry being lower than chiropractic colleges. I remember <laughs> a Family Guy bit where Peter goes, "God, this is easier than the time I graduated from chiropractic college." <laughs> and they're like, they like name a few people across the stage and yeah. hand them their diploma, and they turn yeah. the little tassel on their hat, and yeah, then they just so call good. anyone, anyone, <laughs> literally anyone, and then Peter walks across and gets yeah. his diploma because <laughs> it's like we get we get vetted. In the in the court of public opinion, yeah, right. Like your chiropractor, you kill a baby. It's like that's yeah. that's a black guy. Yeah, but exactly. in the fitness industry, it's like to be less than that is bad. Yeah. How do you then navigate, like you know, with your role at Hybrid and you, the content you guys put out? How do you navigate the fitness industry with your critical thinking mind? Like, does it bother you the stuff that you see? I mean. It bothers me less because in the chiropractic world, I feel like they're harming people in pain. Right. Right. I feel like you're doing a disservice in a really unethical way. And people are like, oh, I just need to make money. Like, I have all these student loans. And, like, this is how it's been done. And, like, it looks like, you know, people get better. So, like, what's the harm? I'm like, there's serious, like, ethical harm in telling people how broken they are and doing unnecessary treatment and over-treating and, and perpetuating pain and disability you know, either intentionally or unintentionally. It's probably worse if, if you know better and you're doing it, you know, you're doing it to make money or to, or because you can't imagine a way you'd make money otherwise. Like, that's, that's, that's a serious problem. If you're in the fitness industry, you just don't know better or you just don't value it. I mean, those people are in and out more frequently. Like, they're trying to make it in the fitness industry. They, they realize they don't have any momentum and they leave. They go back to their job or this isn't actually their job and they're just giving bad advice. And it's much easier for people just to turn off that advice as opposed to clinicians, even if, you know, the chiropractors, people still trust their chiropractor enormously. Like, I've had that problem seeing patients where people are like, you know, I have the, the best chiropractor but the worst back. You know, I've been seeing my chiropractor for 15 years. I just can't afford it anymore, so I'm coming to the, the student clinic, you know. But, 
he told me if I move a certain way, I can get paralyzed or, you know, my scoliosis, which is non-existent in some of these people, but like they just imagine a scoliosis because they took an x-ray funny, you know, is, is causing the crippling pain and they haven't done anything they loved in 15 years. Like that chiropractor caused serious harm to that person's life, right? Because of what they told them. And yep. because of how they sold their treatment, in, right? Yeah, I mean, fear is an excellent yeah. motivator. Yeah. I've been on the benef <laughs> the, the benefactor on the benefactor side of yeah. that a few times, but not in a chiropractic sense. Yeah. Where it's like you want people to do something. Yeah, you, you, you instill the fear of God into them, and they'll yeah. pretty much do it. Yeah. What are the biggest grievances you see, maybe less harmful, but with greater reach in the fitness industry? When it comes to um, perpetuating yeah. bad science, or I mean, they perpetuate some of the same things. It's just like. You know, your posture is causing your pain and they're just not qualified to speak about it. Like, or you're, you know, or you're, you know, you're gonna blow out your ACL if your knee ever comes in. Or, right, these just fear-based narratives that they don't know anything about. They don't know anything about pain. They don't know anything about biomechanics. They just heard that from someone and they're trying to sell something. And it doesn't even occur to them that they, that, that might be wrong because they've never actually learned how to kind of uncouple the things they've learned from from an approach they developed as to how to learn things right they never actually questioned their inherited knowledge do you, right? do you look around so they have classroom? no epistemology and that epistemology comes from education right when you look around your classroom how many of your maybe you should say are you almost graduated <laughs> wait till oh, you like yeah. you don't have to see these kids again but i could say it with confidence and like i'm not the smartest guy but i, I think i have a good idea on how to learn things mm -hmm. and i think that is just a product of the education system that I grew up in. Like, mm -hmm. I knew I was in trouble when I moved to California for grad school, and I would use the words, "Hey, uh, when do we when do we write the test?" Like in in reference to a board exam or yeah. or a midterm or something. And I would ask my American friends, like, "Hey, when do we write the test?" And they look at me like, "What the fuck are you talking about? We don't write the test." It's like, what? Like, no, no, no. Like the test, the midterm. They're like, no, no, no. Like, what do you mean? The teacher writes the test. We take the test. I was like, no, like because everything I every test I took was long form. Yeah, especially and I'm quite similar to you. And in, in high school, my my field of interest was history. Yeah. I actually started my undergraduate in history and political science. Yeah, I started my undergrad in political science. I minored in economics. Love it. So, yeah. but it's like yeah. you can't just circle C. Yeah. Right. And then, but going to chiropractic college and, and being amongst it's people. all multiple choice, dude. <laughs> crazy. Like, how do you sit in a classroom with these people? And like, do you do you just like drive a railroad spike through your brain and sit there and just drool uh, through both sides of your mouth and just go like C C C? Like, yeah. It, well, you know, the testing was never. It was actually chiropractic school testing was probably the easiest testing I've ever done in my life. Um, just like within the program, it was just all. Very easy, but because the answer is on the page, right? Yeah. And you just have to like have a basic understanding of everything to get through it. But uh, in class, I mean, mostly you, you know, you, you get a sense of paying attention when it's important and just doing other things when it's not important. Like it's when I'd read a lot of of, of literature. Like I read a lot of. I have a, I have five hundred papers on my Mendeley account from this year, just. Just you know, getting sent paper, like, talking to people, getting sent papers, you know, going through references, reading literature reviews, and just going back into the paper, just finding literature. And then you go through sites like ResearchGate, and you get sent suggestions based on your previous suggestions. Actually, going through every issue of JOSPT and reading pretty much everything in that issue because 
That's one of my favorite journals. Yeah, and you know, because and, you have a three-hour histology yeah, lecture. Yeah, and BJSM, and and go and because you have full text access to all this stuff, is like go through every paper that interests you instead of listening to another hour about geriatrics, right? Fuck. Yeah, that was eighth quarter. <laughs> eighth quarter geriatrics, yeah. Doctor Brown. He yeah. was. He may have passed now, actually. God, he was yeah. like 75. I mean, go straight to the source, I guess. Yeah. But what advice do you give, like, your students or people that reach out to you? Like, we were talking about this yesterday, yeah. and we decided to, like, decided, like, we have a plan. Like, mm -hmm. hey, let's do this again because yeah. it was really well received. What advice when you, kids in chiropractic college reach out to you and just just totally fucking lost? Yeah. Like, they just got bear-maced or something. Like, they have no idea where they are. What advice yeah. do you find yourself giving most often to people in that position? It's basically the advice I just gave is like you got to read a lot of literature and you got to get better at reading it. And a lot of papers have like how to read literature, like in, in like little helpful articles in the paper. And so it's like what is change versus difference is like a change is with, is a within group effect. Like, for example, with pain, people just get better over time. So you, you'll see reduced pain over time. Difference is a difference between groups, which is what you're actually testing when you have a multi-arm trial. But people don't understand that difference. You don't understand when you're reporting a change versus a difference. That's a big thing. And also, it, and like in that same article, it would say it would go over minimally, you know, clinically important difference. It's like, right, a imperceptible difference can be measured statistically, but you don't see a 0 0.01 numerical pain scale difference in clinic, like on, a, on an individual level. So that effect is, is not even useful to think about. It's a statistically apparent effect, but it's not a clinically important effect. So if you see a paper that establishes, there's kind of common rules and there's other ways that are more complicated to, to try to figure out what is, what is clinically perceptible might be dependent on the thing that they're measuring, but there's kind of common usage for different scales, like for example, pain is usually a two or just over a two point difference in a you know out of ten scale is is clinically perceptible and clinically important. So, if the paper reports that and then shows that, and the confidence interval is tight to that because it's all probabilistic, it's right. It's not reporting exactly that. It's saying it's it's probably that, and we're ninety five percent certain it's within this range. If it's above that range, like with some with a recent exercise meta analysis, it was above that range. It was like it was, it was like three or four, right? And it was on a hundred point scale, so it's thirty to forty. But so that's really high, right? Most most stuff isn't that helpful for pain when you actually do that. But the point is that's how you know how to read those effect sizes, right? And that's an example of another, you know, of of just one of the many things that goes that goes into a paper, you know, methods and what are biases, what are right. So you need to. Ba have a basic understanding of, of those things. You know what is pre-reporting. What is you know basic statistical tools. If you don't, you don't really have to be a statistician, but you have to know basically, you know, what what variance is, what standard deviation is, what these effect sizes are, how they're measured, what confidence intervals are, right? What power is right? The larger the study, you know, the more power it has. But that that has a and that could detect smaller effect sizes. Right, but so with significance, but so so you get better at understanding, and if you don't understand something, look it up is what I generally tell people, and it's also helpful to read other people's interpretation of the literature as long as you don't just take their word for it, but you can see what they find useful out of it, so that's why all these literature reviews are helpful, and that's why I do them on the blog right now, 
It's like, so this is what I got at the study, right? And it's usually not like this study proves this or that. Like it's not a sensationalist, you know, I don't know, clickbaity or or morning news thing yeah. about how coffee causes cancer now, right? <laughs> but it's like this is what the study this is what the background for the study is, this is what the methods they use, this is what they found, this is what it means, I think, for practice. You know, or this is what this is what kind of directionally this line of research is saying and this and this is what it might mean in terms of application in reading and maybe reading is the wrong word in interpreting the amount of research you interpret mm -hmm. is it hard to not become nihilistic to research as a as a, a form of evidence it's for example yeah like talk about intra examiner reliability of like palpation of landmarks yeah, I'm sure you've well read. It's terrible. It's yeah. like we don't know if we're on a thoracic spine or a cervical <laughs> spine. It's yeah. like touching yeah. a, are you touching the head or a tailbone. Right <laughs> yeah, <now? laughs> exactly. It's the literal research equivalent of do we know our ear hole from our asshole? And but how do you? That was the other thing. It's like if you don't tell someone they're looking for a trigger point, nobody finds the same trigger point. Yeah. If you say the trigger point is there, they can they can kind of find it. They can yeah. all find the same thing. But if you're like this, examine the patient. But that's you know? that's like because I know a lot of <laughs> manual therapists. Yeah. Who, they're, good, they're good scientists. Yeah, they're terrible clinicians. Yeah, they're fucking dog shit because they're they become nihilistic. Yeah, because there's there's not that overarching view of like this bird's eye view of like okay here's the research here's the patient yeah. we know we're gonna get better here's the creative albeit maybe not directly by the book but here's the plan yeah where some people just i swear they just sit in offices and and read lit review to people yeah until but I they think leave. Th I think that's where like the zooming out and thinking in terms of systems and thinking laterally helps because the literature is very reductious and granular and it has to be to get any sort of real knowledge out of it and not fool yourself because it's so easy to, to fool yourself into thinking a certain way when actually what you're seeing is not what's happening right and and because you have to imagine counterfactuals like is what i'm seeing the result of what i think is is the underlying force that's driving this or am i seeing it something else that I'm not recognizing. You read the book of why. Right, yeah. Holy fuck. Right. How many times did you have to read that? I I got lost in the AI section at okay, the end. Okay, because that's... I got totally lost. But the causal diagram, the the ladder of... So for people who don't know, right, there's observing, then there's influencing, right, and then there's imagining if you did something versus you didn't do something. And that's kind of the highest level of reasoning of, of establishing causality, and that's essentially science. Is like we do something, and then in the exact same circumstance, or in, in as controlled circumstance as possible, this is a randomized control trial. Right, this is the Fisher statistician, right, kind of breakthrough. Is like we isolate one variable, we apply it to one almost identical group or as identical as possible group, and then we don't do, we basically remove, we do everything but the the variable that we're testing to a parallel group, and we measure the difference. That's what we need to do, essentially. Or we need to manufacture that, was the point of that book, in observational data, which we can't replicate experimentally, which is almost impossible to do. But with very sophisticated modeling, you can begin to do. But that's the only way we can ask, ask those questions of what if I'd done something versus what if I didn't do something? What are the effects? Because that determines that cause, that causal of, you know, cause inference. to effect relationship. Yeah. yeah, That's causal inference, right? Yeah. It's like that, I know if I act this way in the world, this will happen because I understand that relationship. Most people, right, just follow this, you know, 
post hoc fallacy of I did something, something happened afterwards, therefore I know exactly what's happening. And the more they go through that process, the more they reinforce their actually faulty assumptions and false beliefs. And that happens in clinical practice all the time. But so you go through that process of really learning about what's happening and more importantly what's not happening when you're when you're going through this this clinical experience. But but when you realize what's not happening and the narrative that you're reinforcing yourself is actually not as solid as you thought it was, you can begin to free yourself up to use those tools in very different ways. And also you can question the new narrative, which is that manual therapy makes everyone weak and, and fragile and dependent on you, right? There's probably only a small subgroup of people where that's actually the case. It's like probably manual therapy is harmless for most people. At least for a little, right, you can do it for a little bit, and then you can tell them, "Hey, this is this is what moves us towards exercise. It'll calm down your symptoms. It'll, you know, it'll kind of show you that your that your X tissue, your shoulder, is is more tolerant of movement than you think it is, right? And then we can go outside and we can go do some movement, and it'll feel better, right? And that and it'll show you that it's not your rotator cuff or your biceps tendon that's really the problem. It's this more complex pain experience that we can modify together, and that you can learn to modify on your own eventually." Right, so that was a useful kind of deployment of manual therapy in, in an evidence-based clinical setting. It's not, I will fix your shoulder by, by exercising the scar tissue out of your, your possessed shoulder, <laughs> right? Devil be gone! <laughs> you just hit him with a coat. You know, I'm not, you know, it's like we always make fun of some of the chiropractic stuff. I'm not toggling C1, you know, <sighs> with a laser light show and a three-minute, so you know, good. ritual, right? But man, that's no. dude, that's fucking selling right now. Yeah. Like these Kairos assholes. Have you seen this fucking guy? Yeah. The guy with the neck tattoo. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. like, look, usually as a general rule, yeah. like big neck tattoos, that's a hard no for me. Don't fuck with the guy with the neck tattoo. <laughs> if you'll do it to his neck, imagine what he'd do to yours. Yeah, like exactly. grow up in a rough enough neighborhood, you get to go, all right, neck tattoos, you're yeah. good. You want my wallet? Here you go. Yeah. But this fucking Kairos group that's coming out with like their new thing and it's all like energy and bullshit. And yeah. it's just like it it it's it's sad when you see a left of center approach being marketed in chiropractic colleges yeah. itself in the institution, yeah. but it opens up an even further left market yeah. of like, guys, we're so far left. None yeah. of this can be right. Like yeah. this is so wrong. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And that's an example of just, you know, you just make up a narrative to fill the gaps of your lack of understanding. Oh, yes. Right. So it's like, I don't understand what's happening. Therefore my story must be the only thing that, that, that I can operate based on, as opposed, and not, and science doesn't explain it. Well, science does explain it because contextual effects are really powerful, and we can show that in almost everything, including very complex surgeries. That contextual effects are pretty much entirely driving it, right? If you can, if 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 uh, shoulder decompression surgery is no better for impingement or actual, you know, subacromial pain syndrome than a placebo surgery, a sham surgery where they just they told you they did it and they didn't do it. Yeah. If those produce the same effects, which they do really robustly, high-powered, right, large, multi-centered, well-controlled, randomized clinical trials, then what do you think you're doing, right? Yeah. We understand that pain is very contextual and very social and very, right, and very multidimensional. And the tissue status is just one very small component of that, of that picture, which we talked about last time. So that's the narrative, and that's a very robust narrative that we have right now, and that's a very empowering narrative because it says we can do a lot of things as long as we're mindful of the patient experience, as long as we understand that there's no magic bullet and these things take time, and that our approach is empowering and it's movement-oriented and it's 
it's health conscious and it's and it appreciates the person as a person and not as a bag of of pathologic tissue to be ablated or corrected or <laughs> adjusted yeah or adjusted to me or, you know or fixed or aligned aligned or, that's <laughs> what to me it's tantamount to the out of the gaps theory yeah. Yeah, like getting into religious. Yeah. I don't want to say arguing discussion with people, mm-hmm. and like when you when you corner someone like this with science and reason and mm-hmm. logic and this sort of contextual approach, yeah, it ends up just going like, well, God works in mysterious ways. Yeah. It's like okay, <laughs> we're done here. See yeah, we ya. just don't have. Then we don't have any common framework, and that's irresponsible medicine because that's how that's not how medicine operates. Yeah. It's like you don't pray over someone who has cancer, right? People do, but they but that's not. It's actually not ethical, right? And doctors understand that it's not ethical because you can actually do things to help them yeah. meaningfully right now, right? And also someone who's having a heart attack is like you do, you put a stent in because that will save their life, yeah. right? <laughs> you don't just say I'm going to do lymphatic drainage over their thoracic cavity to move their plaque I think around. it's lymphatic drainage, 12 Hail Marys, yeah. <laughs> some shockers. We're going to show crystals on yeah, you. Yeah. Gonna get you, you put squared. a crystal over the aorta and the, the energy. Dude, I mean, yeah. I've heard chiropractors <laughs> claim the cure for cancer. Yeah, that's explicitly that. illegal in most states. That's yeah, yeah. I would say in most developed countries, that's mm-hmm. illegal. You mm-hmm. can't say that, mm-hmm. but people will go as far as to say that. Yeah, yeah, they they cure dengue and HIV and can, yeah. <laughs> can you? Is it possible to create a good enough argument that these people can go away? Like, can you create? an objective enough science about the subjective reality around context and pain that all of a sudden these people don't have a leg to stand on or is it they don't have a leg to stand on now and they just do what they're doing anyways on the backs of um, either either exploiting people's fear or giving these people false hope well i think everyone's prone to those tendencies of thinking like that it's just hidden a little bit right is really the, the the lack of questioning whether you're scraping scar tissue with your tool, like it's a li- it's it's smaller and less extreme and less insidious than than those ideas, but it's basically the same fault of lack of critical thinking, right? And that has a place because, right, payers don't really care whether you're doing an unnecessary treatment for like three minutes, like they may stop paying for it, but it's like, are they really gonna take away your license for 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 saying that? Right? They're not going to regulate you that heavily because it's a burden to regulate people that heavily. But the trend over time is to eliminate unnecessary treatment and to create more efficiency in the system, even though it's very inefficient as it is. But it, but in terms of, I think, overall direction, it's moving in that direction. And the more the system has to optimize for outcomes over cost, the more you have to let go of the things that actually aren't producing benefit because we know they aren't producing benefit because we actually test... Again, people think they're producing benefit because they observe a benefit, but you can never establish the cause of that benefit unless you do an experiment, right? Because you can't say that that cause was was the natural history of pain, was contextual effects, or was regression to the mean effects, right? Or an active treatment effects. Because then we say active treatment effects, those are very small regardless of what we do, right? So then the expectation is clear that we're actually not going to do all that much on average. Some people might see huge benefits, but most people see a modest benefit if we do standard, individualized, patient-centered, conservative care. And some people might see so little benefit that they actually need to go on to more invasive approaches, right? And so there is a, a role for some people, possibly with a subgroup effect, which we don't understand at all because a surgeon can't predict who does well with, with most orthopedic surgeries and who doesn't. But 
And that's a problem even for really successful surgeries like total knees. But so that problem is an ongoing problem. But those people who are on the periphery of the system, I think, are on the periphery of the system now as regulators and payers get more efficient at finding out who those people are. If they're taking advantage of the system, they'll be cut out of the system. But people always pay cash for those things because they they, they pay cash for a psychic, they pay cash for yeah, you know, card reading. Yeah, like yeah. That, yeah. They, they're the same. The alternative healers. They pay cash for for sound therapy, for very far eastern acupuncture, right? Like with all of the things, as opposed to just dry needling or or just like a medical acupuncturist, even though that's kind of the same thing as whatever manual therapy you want to do. Um, but I think so. The problem is. It's a very human thing to think like that. It simplifies the world. It gives you purpose, and we're and it and it does serve us day to day in terms of our near term kind of causes and effects, right? But the problem is eventually it doesn't, and there are times where it continues to not serve you, and you don't recognize that because your your view of the world is predictive and not reactive. Meaning, like I've established this 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 concept of how the world works. I can. I can most of the time predict that people will get better or I most of the time predict that this will happen if I do this. So it's easier to operate that way as opposed to constantly analyzing and evaluating and Thank trying you. to take in, yeah, trying to take in as much information as possible because it can be overwhelming. Right, so it's easier just to ignore incoming information and operate based on your prior beliefs. Is the problem, hard? again, the problem is that ultimately fails and you don't recognize when that fails because you're you're wired now not to gather information that could disconfirm your belief is it hard to have that stance now like i would say we are we are in the middle of a a a cognitive recession like no like i mean think about the present of what you want think about but like there there yeah, there's is an anti-science kind of yeah there's an anti-intelligence yeah oh yeah right like uh, like across the board it's almost like I don't, I don't want to say it's demonized to be you're demonized to be smart or maybe not even smart to like think about thinking yeah but it's like you're you're preaching a, a progressive narrative a very fluid thought process in a world where people are you know they're, they're, they're signing up for Scientology like yeah, Scientology, Scientology churches it's, it's, it's down the fucking street I know we go past it every day I'm like, right and insane. it's like or people are you know the, the flat earthers are like a I was thing. gonna mention flat earthers yeah but it's like is it hard to because it's like you know we, we can't if you don't fix patients' way of thinking, they are they are what's driving the system, right? Like yeah. we can we can work on clinicians one podcast at a time <laughs> as we go through our crusade and save the world. But yeah. it's like at the end of the day, man, it's people are going to shell out the cash for the chakras and the stones. Like, yeah. Well, I think we're also both in a position where we can speak in this way because we're not in the system. Like we're not invested in the system as it is. We're 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 not constrained by it as much. Right, I sit here with my job at hybrid and I can say whatever I want about how clinicians should shouldn't be operating and how patients should and shouldn't be thinking. And that's freeing because it's also like I don't really have to see all of the limitations of, of of actually trying to get that moving in the right direction. It's like, yeah, we have to change patients' mind, but and a lot of patients their mind will never be changed and we can only kind of work at pe with people who are open to that sort of change. And also the problem is heuristics are useful in most of our lives and we can't just not have heuristics of thinking. So the question is getting better 
analytic processes to people who need to apply those to the right people. And that might be the product of people just going through this painful process of try you know, of trial and error and failure until they have to take this kind of this harder to swallow approach because right the soothing lie is always easier to to tolerate than the uncomfortable truth. Yeah, it's right? the, the white lie versus <laughs> yeah. the black truth. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Is it do you see the trajectory of the profession maybe maybe medicine as a whole or maybe more specifically to manual therapy or both? Do you see it headed in a positive in a positive direction? I think so because because of data. I think the data doesn't lie and it's becoming more and more easy to collect real data. Right in the past, you could say I had great outcomes. It's like, how do you know? It's like because patients tell me. Well, it's like now the payer knows whether the patient is still disabled five years later or, or ten years later, and it's like, and they know based on the other guy, and else this will only get better because it depends on what system you're in now. And like, if you're in a capitated system where you're getting a fixed rate based on based on everyone in the pool, if, if you don't know how insurance works, and and you're basically incentivized to minimize the members of the pool's utilization. Now it's all about outcomes, and and the clinician actually bears the cost it's of like treating. a Kaiser system. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is hilarious because yeah. Kaiser hates chiropractors yeah. for the most part. Yeah, yeah, because well, we need as a as a clinician you need to prove that that what you're doing is not just leveraging natural history of pain to show that you've demonstrated an outcome, right? You need to actually meaningfully affect the pool, yeah. which a lot of chiropractors can't prove that they do, right? But if we can show that based on just passive collection of data over time and good analysis of that, you can't fool yourself forever, right? You can't just kid yourself into thinking that that, that patient who walked out the door, that client that, that, you know, quit your service if you're a trainer or something, you know, quit because just, their results were so good and they just don't need you anymore. They actually quit because you failed, right? Or, your, or what you provided wasn't actually very useful to that patient. Is it, is it hard though? Because like in talking about perhaps like payers' outcomes and yeah. insurance companies getting wiser and yeah. data being more accessible, like that's on the insurance side. Yeah. And, and like I think there's a there's a value to it yeah. to, to having insurance. But like I we come from two totally different worlds in the sense that yeah, we're from Canada, man. Free yeah. health, free healthcare. Yeah. But it's like if if private industry will drive change and like if the money is going to ultimately decide how yeah. people begin to start to think and operate yeah with the insurance system in the states it's like you're not reaching as many people as you could or maybe should yeah is that going to be a potential disconnect in the ability to make change over time where the insurance companies not they don't seem like they're going anywhere anytime yeah. soon that's a complex political problem as well right because that the environment around Medicare and Medicaid may change because the costs are so high. It's such a huge percentage of the buzzer. There's there's so much waste. There's so much uh, right fraud and abuse. And the fact that there's private middlemen inflate the cost a ton and the pharmaceutical industry in the U.S. is so expensive, but they're like, it's because we fund research and development. It's like, well, how much research and development is actually driving that cost? We don't really know. So that's a whole conversation that I'm not really an expert in, but I generally think about it a little bit. But I think in general, the costs are moving so high and also the cost of disease and of disability is only getting worse that the outcomes have to get better over costs, right? We have to deliver more outcomes per dollar. And that is the problem of 21st century healthcare is how do we deliver better outcomes for every dollar we spend? Because right now the U.S. Deliver, delivers the worst outcomes per dollar in healthcare spending in the developed world. Right, we have good outcomes, but we just spend an enormous amount of money on it, 
And some of that's just going to middlemen and to waste and to you know, huge hospital bills. But but right, but those hospitals need those huge hospital bills and we need to do something with the middlemen. So eventually costs are what are 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 an easy thing to manage and you can't just not treat people. So eventually you have to figure out what's working and what's not working in a more sophisticated way. And that's that's part of the broader solution in my mind. And it's something that on a small scale, musculoskeletal practitioners and chiropractors specifically can do because it's an easier problem than thinking about complex surgeries and complex and cancer, which is an enormously complex heterogeneous disease that with billions of dollars of funding still hasn't really been figured out in a way. We made advances in certain cancers, but not in others. But, but musculoskeletal pain and conservative care it's just this, the gap, the current gap between evidence and practice is, is so significant and so easily uh, traversed. It's like you could just do this better and reduce costs. And if we're incentivized to do that, then all of a sudden a lot of things change, right? In terms of the way people think about practice. Because right now the incentives are in the opposite direction, especially for payers and fee for service. But so we can, we can, we can contribute our share to reducing costs and improving outcomes by following the evidence. Right by by not being seventeen years behind, right the the evidence and standard guidelines. So you're saying Bernie Sanders could fix all this for us? Is that what you're saying? No, no. because right no. that every every possible solution just brings up another series of huge problems. Right, because you know how medic Medicare works. It's a it's a disaster to to try to at least for a chiropractor to try to work in for Medicare. I just didn't do it. Yeah. Like even when I was in the system per se, like I was mm. more involved mm. in day to day clinical practice, mm. whether it be like corporate or private. It was like I just couldn't be fucked. Like mm. I, and I think that's the advice I end up giving most people is like Yeah. Delayed gratification. If it's gonna be better in the long term and suck in the short term, do yeah. the, do that one. Yeah, because it's like that was way easier to, to to reconcile all these issues with. It was like I'm just not gonna do any of this stuff. That yeah, so you have a lot sense. more freedom with with what you do. And but my thing to people who are like, yeah, I'm gonna I want to help a lot of people. You know, I'm gonna work in a bigger system and the insurance model, but I'm gonna do I'm gonna get really good at the way things are right now. My thing is, my advice to them is, it might not be in ten years, it might not be in twenty years, but the system will change significantly, especially. For us, where it can change much easier, so we'll, we, you know, they won't change how it works for hospitals before they change how it works for us because they could easily. We have no negotiating power, yeah. right? So they can say, okay, you, we're no longer doing fee for service or chiropractors. You get, you get two thousand dollars for this condition. Every time you treat them, you you take a hit out of that two thousand dollars, right? So now, now you need to deliver as as right. You if you could afford to see them in one visit and give them the best possible results, right? And and the payer is happy, the patient is happy, and you're happy with that one visit, that's totally turned your your paradigm of care on its head, right? And you're totally, and most people are totally unprepared for that. But I think if you practice that way now, one, that's a better long-term business, right? Obviously, you can see people more than once, but you, you minimize the number of visits, you maximize the efficiency, you you really deliver a lot in a very short period of time, of, of, of one-on-one time. It can, be over, it can be spread out, it can be over months, but the point is you, you really just become much more efficient because chiropractors are tremendously inefficient, right? They spend so much time with, with hooking up patients to things and so many visits over so long. And that's really the problem with dependency and not really thinking about what this patient needs. But but if you do that, I think your business is more sustainable. I think 
that you can you're freer to do other things with your with your time. Maybe you love clinical practice, but you can actually do other. You don't have to you know at you can either see more patients or you can only see patients a certain number of hours in the week and do other things that can improve your business. You right? can sit down and record right, right, podcasts. And record podcasts. Talk on the internet. Right. It's like there's other ways to to deliver value and to and to, right? and that's how you work more efficiently and and have time to read research and, and you know improve what you do for a living and potentially do other things as well. You know, teach, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, I think chiropractic as a profession is is synonymous with being almost like classically reinforced or trained that busy is good. Yeah, that it's like because you like, want a busy practice. I yeah. give you ten to fifteen. I still get calls, an email. We see that you're doing well on Yelp. We do you want ten to fifteen more patients a week? No. no. Why the fuck would I want that? It's like, hey, yeah. I haven't lived there in eighteen months, but yeah. thank you for doing your due yeah. diligence. But it's like. I cap myself at twenty hours a week. Yeah. Then if I failed it, I just up my rates. Yeah, and it's like, right? People are like, it's just like, well, how if patients don't want to do this patient-centered care? It's like, what do you do? It's like, well, then I don't see them, right? <laughs> you turn <laughs> down patients. Touche. Oh, and that's, I think it puts the autonomy yeah. back in your hands, yeah. man. Like when I worked corporate, it was just fucking pandering. Yeah, send them I, to someone else, right? Yeah. Swing a dead cat. You'll find a fucking chiropractor somewhere in like a three-block radius yeah. who's willing to take their money. Yeah, it's like, what if the what if the patient wants to be seen three times a week for four weeks and I'm then I'm not going to see them, Yeah. right? We're going to have... A one-on-one session where I give them some tools, whether that involves doing manual therapy or not, doesn't really matter. Again, my bias is to not do as much manual therapy again because I can do other things, right? I would actually, at this point, in my kind of maturation development, I would have someone else do the manual therapy, like yeah. if, if I if they really wanted it and they and they wanted to do it, because that's just again you want to pick a lane and get really you know good at it and specialize eventually. But we're gonna. It'll be a coaching relationship, essentially, right? Yeah. So that's really that focus for me. And again, then you you right, then you match your expertise to the people who need your expertise, and you develop these successful relationships. And that's how you get these you know these better measurable outcomes eventually that translate to better incentives and and a better profession and a better industry. Yeah. I think a lot of it stems from like a scarcity, like have the balls to set out exclusion criteria yeah. for your patients yeah. or your clients. Like I, whether it's online or in person, like I've absolutely told people, like, I don't think this is going to be a good fit. Like, yeah. I've returned people's money at time of service and be like, look, just, this isn't going to work. Like you yeah, don't want to do the work. You want me to do the work, but then you can at least start to standardize for your outcomes. Yeah. Then it's like, I can and say, I think people appreciate that too. They're like, you know, at least we, you know, I'm, I'm happy he returned my money. I'm happy we didn't go down a path and neither of us were yeah. happy, right? And I can cut my losses early and move on. Yeah. Right. Well, because the only exclusion criteria people have is like, hey, you got med pay? Yeah. Like, oh, okay. All right. You got med pay. All right. Yeah. That's, you're, you're in. It's, yeah. yeah. It's and then a, it's like, well, can I squeak? Can I do two patients at once? It's like, do I need another room? It's like, can I open a, a ninth hour that day i'll do notes at 7 p.m like they're like right working themselves up and then they and then they lose pay and then they kind of go through the cycle of the practice is booming but they're actually just subsidizing their patients and then then when those patients go away now they're they have a huge problem because they've all this invested time and money and now they're not recovering the cost yeah i think learning how to 
and buy back your time. Now they're in the cycle. The most valuable thing you can do. Yeah, and also diversifying your your day, right? That's a big thing for me. This is why I like being a hybrid so much. Is you yeah. just do so many different things. Yeah, right. No, that was. I would spend three four hours in practice. I spent three four hours with the rugby team. Mm -hmm. Then I'd spend a couple hours training. Then mm -hmm. a couple hours online. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I feel it's like anything. Like if you look at any, like maybe even from like an organizational behavior standpoint, like I'm from a factory town. Yeah. And it's like, you know, if you want better outcomes on the line, mm -hmm. you're going to, the guy's not going to put the same three screws in the door of the Pacifica his whole life. Yeah. Because you're going to have a huge problem in about like six months where doors start falling off Pacificas because yeah. this guy just got sick of it. So you rotate him through. And then that, that novelty keeps engagement high. And I think people don't see that, that their lives turn into, you know, albeit they're professionals and they work in a nice clinic and they're established in their community. Like they're still it, cogs. It's still manual machine. labor. Yeah. <laughs> and so they put the same three adjustments into the, the soccer mom. And the flying just, seven. The flying seven. <laughs> the old, what's that, the ring dinger? Yeah. You know, I'm fucking, did I tell you this last time? There's a chiropractor, like. Quite a large following. I don't know what his, his engagement uh -huh. is. Maybe it's shit, but yeah. I think he buys his followers or whatever. He has me blocked <laughs> on Instagram. Oh, yeah, I know. He's, He's the guy who's hitting people with a fucking hammer. Yeah. We talk about this yeah, last time. Yeah. You talk, I don't think on the podcast, oh, but you mentioned it. Yeah. Yeah, this fucking guy. People send me videos all the time. Like, hey, what do you think of this? And it's like, look, if you got to ask, yeah. you already know. Yeah. You know I think it's bullshit. Yeah. And you just try to get a rise out of me. But yeah, yeah I had a guy like... One of these dudes hitting people with fucking hammers. Yeah. And like a large following. And I go like, oh, I can't see the video. It's like, oh, that's weird. And it's like, just like preemptively blocked you? Or yeah. did you mention? No, I never talked. <laughs> never said a bad word about it. Now I'll fucking talk shit all day. Like if, you, if you're that big of a coward, it's yeah. like, yeah, it's a bow high tower yeah, yeah yeah he's out there hitting people with hammer. do your do, fuck do your thing i've man. watched enough ring dinger videos now i get suggestions for his videos on my youtube feed they did something <laughs> together the ring dinger guy someone at a school no yeah, less yeah this high tower character and the ring dinger guy yeah did something at one of the schools if you're at that school go to a different school oh yeah sorry if that's who you're allowing to be paraded in front of you under your own dime or by your own dime like yeah. get the fuck out yeah i mean there's a lot of that at different different schools they'll hear they'll listen to anybody and our school's gone kind of gone the other direction like nobody can speak unless they're like very pre-approved yeah you no, know and good. we've had a couple people slip through and then and then the dean is like oh how did we let this person speak here really yeah it's well it's <laughs> it bad like, man like and i think the standardization yeah. of the education is very emblematic of yeah. the lack of standardization of care mm -hmm. it's like in a in a 35 minute drive and no traffic you can probably see two of these greatest stark and contrast differences in treatment of care like standards of treatment of care between life west and palmer college yeah. uh, west yeah palmer college school i graduated from and like on most accounts like very i would say research-based very progressive very yeah. like critical thinking in their approach it's yeah still i think with plenty of work to be done yeah but up the road man like life west they're on, a, they're on a mission from Yola. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where they're on a mission from. Like they're the Scientologists. From, yeah, from Zeno. Yeah, there Zeno's you go. Them the like everyone's gonna get clear. Yeah, clear <laughs> of subluxations. It's like what the flying fuck are you guys talking yeah. about? But oh. it's like it, it's hard to. And I'm glad I I do what I do now to a certain yeah. extent, but because it's like when people ask me what I do, it's like, eh, I own a business. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have to go to the chiropractor route. Yeah. Because everyone's so quick to tell you their negative experience with the chiropractor. Yeah. And I'm usually like, I know, like I deal with them a lot. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. You know. If you knowing what you know now, would you go back and do it all, all the same? It's hard because I think it was the right decision at the time. Yeah. And in hindsight, right, I'm really happy being here and doing this. 
and and it was just like my path through education. It was like it was like maybe I mean there's wackiness in PT school and you talk to PTs and like, yeah, we have the same wackiness. <laughs> you know, but I'm like, are, is it really as wacky? And I'm like, you know, are we have a particular brand of wackiness? But I don't know. I think I think for me graduate level education was important and even with all the wackiness it it it, it was helpful and the the time spent wasn't a waste of time. Okay, yeah. let me let me rephrase the question because your use of time is is drastically different than most people's. Yeah, like you were going to be successful. What it's intelligence and conscientiousness; those yeah. are the two driving predictors of success yeah, in the right. Western the world. Big five, right? right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I'm a firm believer in the yeah. big five. Like yeah. uh, Myers Briggs, I'm like, eh. Yeah. So, so, but I think the yeah, big, big five, five is a lot easier to understand the Myers Briggs. I think so, yeah. and I think it's it's it leaves less room for like codification. Yeah. Right. So it's a little bit more fluid yeah. in the way. You right. Can the better it. better model has less extraneous variables. Right. right. It, the most explanatory with the fewest variables. But right? I would say like your your you would be successful regardless based off of the predictors of success being intelligence and conscientiousness. Yeah. So rather than asking you whether or not you do it again because mm -hmm. you'd end up on your feet. Yeah. Based off of those criteria, if when people come to you mm -hmm. and go, "Hey man, I'm thinking about going into chiropractic." So they slide in the DM. Yeah. They slide <laughs> in the old Kaplan hybrid DM yeah. and then yeah. they I cuz I'm sure you get it. Yeah. Hey, uh, should I go to chiropractic college? Yeah. Do you say yes or no? Yeah, that's that's the emotional shepherd coming Whoa. out. Like I to, you know, I I get all of the the existential crises. I, I think I get, on Instagram <laughs> they would say you get all the feels. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my my thing is you have to understand clinical practice in general, and my belief is that right your education is only going to give you a minimum legal standard and if you want to work in clinical practice like you have to do this if you want to be in the fitness industry there's a lot of different things you can do right uh fake tits and yeah tits. yeah i mean you can go that route but if you want to be serious you got to like pursue internships and mentorships and develop relationships and you know and it depends where in the fitness industry do you want a masters in exercise science like is that the road you want to go you know some sometimes you know, very few people are like, I'm interested in research. It's like, well, then go get a PhD. Like, very few people are asking me that question. But it's, I say, if you're going to go to chiropractic school, don't go to these schools. Okay. Right? <laughs> and I say... What are... Yeah, name them. Um, Life, Life West. Life, Life West. Sherman. I didn't um, know that was a school. Yes, yeah, in South Carolina. It's, it's pretty crazy. Um, and I would say, you know, depending on where you are and where you want to be, I mean, I, I recommend Kaiser just because I'm familiar with it. And... Right on the West Coast is Palmer West, but very few people are asking me if they want to go to the West Coast. So I'm like, if you want to go, stay on the East Coast, uh, Bridgeport, because I know a bunch of people from Bridgeport. They're all in the rehab council, so they're all very exercise-minded. Yeah. And they're the only school that doesn't mention the word subluxation at all in their entire curriculum. No S word. So Love so it. Kaiser mentions it once in historical context, okay. and then qualifies it by saying we actually don't use that word ever. Yeah. So, but they use the word and saying they don't use the word. <laughs> yeah, there's some right? racial circles that do that. Yeah, but I'm saying it's like, right, so the, so there was a, an audit done at University of Bridgeport. So they're saying, like, how many schools use it and how many how many courses. And Kaiser was listed for one, and Bridgeport was zero. And then, like, life is thousands of times. And, oh. <laughs> you know, but uh, so, but that's why I recommend Bridgeport as well. But I'm not familiar with the with the PT climate, but I'm like, if you have the prerequisites for PT, go, like, look at a PT school because there's some really sophisticated PT programs that are just more mature than yeah. chiropractic programs. 
Well, I think they're they're held under the guys, albeit may not yeah. it may not be a, a benefit, but like yeah. they're more at the table with yeah. with the common medical. Yeah, system. you're gonna you're gonna be in more hospitals. You're yeah. gonna or network with network more, with orthos yeah, 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 and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to go that clinical route, and there's disadvantages, right? The scope isn't as big in most states, you know, relative to chiropractors. Yeah. So if you want that autonomy, it's chiropractic is kind of the way they go. But again, this, the education has its own biases, but there's a lot of overlap. And eventually, if you're in our space and this kind of fitness, but also understanding a little bit about pain and rehab space, then it's ultimately the same thing, yeah. right? I think it's how you differentiate yourself. Yeah, to yeah, me, yeah like, it doesn't matter whether you're PT or Cairo, it matters who you are who's the, and what's your value proposition. Who's the, have you ever, it's a TED talk about like being a purple cow on the side of the road? <laughs> no. It, it's basically like, you know, you see a, a thousand cows on the side of the road and you're, you're not going to stand out. Mm. Like I think... Being what being right now, us as chiropractors, is beneficial. Yeah, because we are we're purple cows on the side of the road. Yeah, it's like ninety. I think it's like fifty percent of chiropractors claim they do exercise, but like ninety percent don't. Yeah, like so. There's forty percent there's lying. Yeah, and then there's like you know, so there's like there's a very tiny fraction, and also there's a smaller fraction of that that actually just don't do more than posture exercises. Yeah, you know, so there's like there's very few people who read evidence, who understand that movement is important, that teach exercise, that have a strength background, and that work with people who are athletic and pursuing, right, kind of high performance goals. Yeah. That's such a small market in chiro- for, for among the chiropractic profession. Which is right? great if you can do that genuinely. Yeah. Like if you can do that, because I would say our mindset is more aligned with physical, like common practice in physical therapy. Yeah. Because they're drilled with more of like the importance of exercise. Now, I think scaling to the level where we've scaled where like you're at hybrid and I sort of just go around doing my own thing where mm-hmm. it's like there's understanding exercise and then there's understanding exercise. Like yeah. There's understanding of a, a, a progression in counter rotation core exercises yeah. then there's understanding the mechanics of like a, a fastball. Yeah. And then understanding mechanics of like a 900 pound squat. Yeah, right. This, it's hard to follow someone all the way to their performance activity. Right. And you need you need a strength and conditioning background for that, or an expert, a, a parallel ex- expertise. So I think I think a lot of people in our world are saying that, like, if you want to be a good physical therapist or chiropractor, you got to learn to be a decent strength coach, or you need to punt that to someone who is. But you need yeah. to know basically what the just as like you need to know what the ortho is talking about, you need to know what the strength coach is talking yeah. about, right? If you don't want to do that, that's fine. But you, then you need to bring someone in who does do that, yeah. right? Or you need to have a way for people. Or if you're not dealing with that population, it's like you need to direct them to whatever Pilates class or to or some sort of exercise offering that, that works for them. You know. I and think I, you used the word shepherd before. Yeah. And if I were to put something on the business card now, I think that's what I would do. Shepherd. shepherd yeah. yeah. I got the beard coming yeah. in. Yeah. Shepherds were badass, but that, way bad. biblical times. We mentioned uh, uh, Peter T the other day. That's what he tells people when he doesn't want to tell them what he does. He's like, I'm a shepherd. Yeah, I like Peter. He's, yeah, he's. I got I want. I he's on my list of people I want to meet and yeah, have a conversation. Uh, his with. podcast. Yeah, uh, people ask me a lot of time for recommendations about hit. Holy fucking long form though. It's probably my favorite podcast though. Yeah, the drive. Yeah, yeah. If you guys want to check out a good podcast and you're still listening to this one, yeah. go check out Peter T. The Drive. Tell him I sent you because yeah. I'd love to. Because he's a, he's Canadian. Yeah. Number one. Yeah. Stanford grad. Number yeah. two. Yeah. So I I got a few ins with him. Yeah. Should uh, I should try and grease that wheel? But yeah, he he makes a lot of interesting arguments. But the the idea of playing the shepherd is like yeah. you got to know the yeah. routes, right? Yeah. I think most people just know they know they know less than they think they know. 
about what they should know, mm. and then they know even less than that about other stuff they don't know that they claim to know. Yeah, I mean that's the right when you don't know what you don't know. Right, it's hard to find the path towards what you should know. And now expect <laughs> even more DMs because I'm sure people are more confused than they were when they started this. Closing advice. It's good to be confused. It's good to be confused. I think you, you're alive. You have a great way of like weaving the title for the podcast right <laughs> into the episode. It's good to be confused. Episode yeah. 148, Ian Kaplan. Yeah. So uh, Kaplan uh, hybrid? Uh, KaplanFitness.hybrid because Kaplan Fitness Hybrid was taken. Motherfucker. Yeah. Who, all right. <laughs> Let's berate this guy who has this account so we can get it. Yeah. Um, and then you're doing a lot of the moderation stuff on the Facebook group at Hybrid? Uh, yeah, I, I'm in charge of the one-on-one program, so I write that now, and I'm pretty involved on the Facebook coaching group, right? Still writing a lot of content and helping manage some of the operations of the business, kind of helping operate the online business. So, and that's the thing. I don't think people utilize the resource of the blog posting at Hybrid enough. I don't think I, that gets enough traction because yeah. I don't think people know that you're at the helm of that. Yeah. So that's hybridperformancemethod.com. Yeah, blog.hybridperformancemethod.com. Blog.hybrid. So I'll put all the stuff in the links. Yeah. Um, yeah, when it comes to like... Yeah, so whenever people are asking about literature, like, they're like, I have... That's one reason why I just write little article reviews on there. I was like, go check out my articles and high performance. And also I have little editorials about like some of the things I mentioned in the podcast is like why evidence is important, you know, why experience can be misleading, right? Uh, so I'm trying to write some of that stuff to help people work through some of these problems of yeah. navigating. So jump on that now because there's no way he's going to keep doing this. There's no way that you're going to keep, you can't keep up with the pace and operations here and be writing this stuff for much longer. I mean, I don't know about that. I think it's valuable. Um, and I don't, I'm, it's maybe one or two articles a month and it doesn't write again efficiency. I think about it all the time. So it doesn't take me that long to put it to paper. They're less than 2000 words. Yeah, you know, utilize right the now. resource while it's still there. Yeah, and right bug now. Ian Kaplan. Right, it might Stephanie be uh, it might be a pay a you know a premium subscription soon. Yeah, so yeah, that, and that's yeah, maybe more yeah, the point. It's yeah, like yeah. get it while you can before yeah. you have to pay for it, and yeah. then when you have to pay for it, fucking yeah. pay for it. And that's that's the plan. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I appreciate your time, man. Right. Um, yeah. So Ian Kaplan. Ian, what is it? Kaplan Fitness Ka- Kaplan, dot Hybrid. Yeah, Kaplan Fitness dot Hybrid. I'll put it all in the show notes, yeah. man. We'll see you next time. All right.